Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Do a quick Amazon search on leadership books and you'll get nearly 200,000 results. These books promise to reveal the leadership secrets of luminaries such as Steve Jobs, notable explorers, military figures and numerous sportsmen and women. Whether we're seeking to improve our own ability to lead or wondering why those around us aren't better at it, there's plenty of advice out there. In this episode of LSEIQ, Sue Windybank looks at the research and asks, what makes a great leader? So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is instantly recognisable. Constant Locke, senior lecturer in practice in LSE's Department of Management, uses Dr. King's speech when she teaches nonverbal communication and leadership presence. So Martin Luther King Jr. is interesting to leadership scholars for many reasons, but the reason I reference him is because of his presence. So I teach leadership presence, which is all about the nonverbal behavior. But oftentimes when we think about nonverbal behavior, we only think of body language, which is a very narrow way of thinking about nonverbal behavior. Essentially, nonverbal behavior is extremely powerful, and it's everything except the words. And Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example of someone who uses his voice. And that's one of those nonverbal channels that we very rarely think to use. We always think about body language, posture, maybe gestures. We don't think about what we do with our voice. And so I tell my students to go on YouTube and listen to him speaking and just listen to what he does with his voice, the tone, the pitch, the cadence, all of these wonderful things. It's really engaging. It's really powerful. And it's something that we can, we can learn from because our, our voice is extremely powerful, but we just don't use it the way we should. Because he doesn't really move that much during no. that speech, does he? No, he hardly moves at all. But it's the voice. It's the. I mean, obviously, the speech itself is also very powerful. The patterns and and all of that. But the the delivery, the power of the delivery, is actually in the voice. I asked Conson if there were any secrets to appearing more leaderly. I don't think there's anything counterintuitive in the stuff that I teach. But I think what's surprising is when you look at the list of nonverbal behaviors that make you look more confident and leader-like, it's a really short list. There's not a lot of things you need to focus on, but it is the stuff you learn in presentation skills training, but it's all about standing up straight, sounding confident, using the eye contact. You know, you could predict these things. But I think what's surprising is how short the list is and how powerful they can be if you just even use a few of them effectively. But the other thing that I teach that perhaps um, people, people might not realize is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. 
anything to do with leadership is never one size fits all. And so I could say, stand up straighter, take up more space, sound confident, use eye contact, and you will look more confident and leader-like. But if someone overdoes it, they'll potentially look arrogant and mess things up completely. You did some research yourself about um, the downsides of appearing overly powerful as a leader. Could you say something about that? So my research was looking at the, the counterintuitive. So we know that it pays off to look confident and leader-like, and I was looking for the situation in which it doesn't pay off. And the situation where it doesn't pay off is when you're... So this happens a lot in consulting firms where the junior people on your team are the ones who have been collecting the data, and now you have to have a conversation with them about the best decision for the client, but you don't know the data as well as they do. So you're coming in as the leader with less information than the junior person. So I was looking at this joint decision-making process. If you come in looking very confident, very leader-like, what I found is that the junior person is less likely to argue back and less likely to push their point of view, especially if you have a different point of view. And it's not because they feel threatened or anything. It's just because you look competent. When you look confident, you also look competent and you look like you know what you're doing. And so... That's what I was looking for, was that situation in which it doesn't necessarily pay off to look so confident and leader-like. And and it just fits with this whole idea of the leader needs to understand the situation. And if you are in a room with a very junior person who might maybe is a little bit nervous, maybe doesn't really want to argue with you, you can't come across as very confident and leader-like because you will just shut them down. There are times, of course, when a highly confident leadership style is essential, such as in the military. I talked to Professor Elizabeth Samet, Professor of English Literature at West Point, the United States Military Academy, via Skype. She's edited an anthology called Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers, and she explained to me the impetus for the book. I should just say that the views she expresses here are hers alone. They do not necessarily represent those of West Point, the US Department of the Army, or the U.S. Department of Defense? Well, I sort of, I realized as I was working on it uh, with a wonderful editor, Julia Reedhead, with whom I talked about this, the planning stages, figuring out what a book might look like. There really seemed to be, leadership is usually the preserve of the social scientists, and that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but we also thought that literature has a great deal to say about liter- about leadership, So we're thinking about ways in which to uh, marry my discipline of English literature to this discipline of leadership. And the result was this book. And I wanted it to make it um, sort of a bit subversive in the sense that I think that leadership is really much broader than, uh, than we customarily thought about it. I think it's often associated with military culture and, of course, In military culture, we talk about leadership all the time, and I think that we see the values and the characteristics, the habits of mind that the best leaders practice in all sorts of literature that has nothing ostensibly to do with leadership, that wasn't designed to make people better leaders, that wasn't a handbook, that wasn't anything like that. One of Elizabeth's particular research interests is Ulysses S. Grant, who came to prominence during the American Civil War. He rose rapidly from a colonelcy in the militia to a regular army commission and command of the Union Army, which he led to victory. 
which is why the leadership lessons that she draws from the extracts of his memoirs are so surprising. General Ulysses Grant led the Union Army to victory in the American Civil War, but you use sections of his memoir in a chapter on failure. Why is that? I think they are... The memoirs, one of the most important autobiographies in the American tradition, and Grant, whose reputation has gone through many different phases since he was undoubtedly even more so than Lincoln. I mean, he was a, he was a global celebrity uh, in the 19th century, and when he went on his world tour after his presidency, um, from everywhere people knew him and greeted him as a hero and then of course he fell out of favor largely because of southern apologists and the, the way that uh you know that the uh the historian eric foner says that uh the north may have won the war but the south won the the post post-war battle over its memory and i think grant's reputation suffered as a result um but even the most complimentary the most uh um optimistic view of his career has to take an, uh, into account several different failures. He's What I like about the memoirs is that he's so open and honest about those failures. And so the passage that I include talks about the moment in the Civil War when he was first in command uh, and was responsible for other people in combat. He had seen combat in the Mexican War, but really wasn't responsible for large numbers of people and was responsible essentially for his own courage under fire, which he showed. Um, So he'd already proved himself in that way. But he's in a situation where he's chasing a a Confederate commander and uh, he's at a moment where instead of calling a halt and sending out a reconnaissance, he decides he's just going to go ride forward with his whole command and see if the, and just, see what he sees. And he, he says that he lacked the moral courage to call a halt. And um, he talks about, uh, I include a couple of passages, but the other passage he talks about is, is um, connected to one of his mentors, who was Zachary Taylor, who was one of the generals in the Mexican War. And it was at that point when he sort of looked at Taylor and thought what it must be like to feel responsible for other people, to feel that burden of responsibility and to deal with it calmly. And he suggests that that quality is rare, even more so than genius or physical courage. And I think that that problem, that challenge of bearing responsibility is one that stays with him throughout his career. And he talks about this moment as being something that he, that he learns something. He learns a lot of things. He learns because his enemy, when he finally does reach the, the point where he thought they were encamped, has decamped and gone elsewhere. And he realizes that they're just as afraid of him as he is of them, which is a really valuable lesson. Um, but I think he also understands there that there's sometimes a need, which I think is very difficult in military culture, um, to understand where moments of physical courage and moral courage where the the dictates of physical courage may conflict with those of moral courage. So sometimes calling a halt, which isn't a particularly, um, it doesn't, it may not look great to the rest of the people you're leading, but it is the necessary thing to do. And so I think that that's an important moment for him. The theatre of war is never far from West Point. Is there a sense that great leaders need crises such as war to emerge? I think that's a prevailing uh, prejudice, yes, that we think we need crisis and that as a result we often make crises um, so that we can we can do something about them. And I think that's really unfortunate that we romanticize crisis in that way. 
because some of the worst crises we can imagine didn't happen because there was some leader there preventing them quietly, often uh, behind the scenes, not doing anything noticeable or dramatic, but um, showing a kind of prudence. And no one gets medals for preventing wars. No one gets medals for uh, preventing a crisis because you can't display your leaderly attributes in the same way. But just you can see it on a local level, and this is true not only of military culture, but of any kind of organization. You can see people meeting or anticipating crises in all sorts of ways and planning prudently and carefully. And what they do uh, doesn't look like leadership, but I think it's the most valuable leadership there is, which is that kind of quiet, um, imaginative, creative approach to problems that other people don't even see yet. Elizabeth turns to Herman Melville's Moby Dick to illustrate her point. So I include several passages in uh, from from Melville's great novel, uh, and some of them have to do with Starbuck, who is the first mate of the of the ship uh, that Ahab leads to disaster. And in Ahab, we have one kind of leader, a sort of romantic, uh, monomaniacal leader who is absolutely fearless and has a kind of greatness about him. Um, but has no problem sacrificing his entire crew to his uh, obsession with uh, with meeting the whale again, the whale that has that has taken his leg. Um, but Starbuck, the first mate, is a completely different figure, and uh, Melville calls him a valor ruined man. And he's unbelievably he's brave. He he fights danger. He's I mean, whaling in the nineteenth century was an unbelievably dangerous uh, trade. And uh, yet he never wants to risk his men unnecessarily. He never wants to take that unnecessary risk. And so he has prudence. And um, part of that prudence, Melville explains, is dictated by the fact that he has a family at home uh, that he'd like to get back to. Um, and yet that there's something sort of just unromantic about that prudence. And it doesn't play as well to many um, as the sort of this, the... Uh, the melodramatic and um, outsized kind of uh, courage uh, that that Ahab has. But of course, that's just self-destructive and destructive of others in the end. So we're left wondering, in a sense, you know, th that the most romantic virtues may also be the most destructive ones. Power can clearly be destructive and knowing its effects is essential for any leader. Here's Professor Ben Voyer, visiting fellow in LSE's Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science. I've heard you talk about some of the negative consequences of being in power. Mm -hmm. What are they? Absolutely. I think people don't realise the extent to which power changes how we see ourselves and, and who we are and how we act. There are research, uh, for instance, research by Keltner that suggests that being in a powerful position can have quite bad consequences for the brain that are similar to um, some traumas or, or drugs that one might take. The thing is... Power has got some benefits. It allows us to be more focused. It allows us to make um, often better decisions because we're less distracted by noise uh, in the sense that, you know, like what pollutes our, our reasoning uh, and, and little elements that can affect the decision making. But um, it also has negative consequences in terms of, you know, feeling more isolated, as we show in our research, uh, and also being less capable of connecting uh, with others. So it's, it's a double-edged word, if you want. And you did some research in a healthcare setting. Can you say something about that? 
Yes, so when I started becoming interested in looking at how power changes ourselves, I wanted to go into an environment where you could very strict hierarchies and power relationships. And so that's why I decided to go to a nursing home where you have very strict relationship and hierarchies between doctor and nurses. And what I wanted to see was, what's, what is the consequence of being a doctor or nurse in terms of your sense of the self, in terms of how connected or disconnected from others you feel? And what did you actually do? So we administered a measure of what we call self-construal, that is the extent to which you construe yourself in an independent or interdependent way. Um, And we surveyed um, doctors and nurses, more than 100 of them. uh, And what we found was that on average, um, doctors reported feeling more independent psychologically than nurses. Uh, And that was true across gender. What was interesting, however is that we got a, a different pattern for men and women when it came to interdependence. Now, what we found was that male doctors um, typically reported feeling uh, less interdependent than male nurses when the opposite was true for um, female doctors and nurses. So female doctors felt more interdependent than female nurses. Uh, in a nutshell, that means that the effect of status, of hierarchy, power, on one sense of the self uh, and specifically on interdependence is not the same whether you're a man or woman according to our research. So how would you explain those findings? Well, we've looked at different explanations. One of them is to look at how women are socialized and typically the socialization process around becoming a woman and, and being a girl at school is around values of caring, being there for your friends, of togetherness, when men tend to be more socialized in in what we would call an independent way or independent manner. So it's about being strong, uh, it's about, you know, being a tough one, being not crying, uh, and so on. So the way uh, men and women are educated could explain these results. The other um, explanation we've put forward is that typically it's more rare to find um, these days women in in high power, high leadership position. Uh, And so when women get in this position, they might feel a need uh, to actually show more um, support uh, and and get more support uh, from the community. Um, But this uh, is something that hopefully can change. uh, And hopefully these results can kind of, you know, level off once um, gender equality gets uh, better and, and more men and women are in equal power position. Ben's findings are really interesting since we often hear about the idea that women have to act as men to reach the most powerful positions. I spoke to Elizabeth Samet about why emulating our leadership heroes, often traditionally men, is only a point of departure in learning how to be leaders ourselves. Caroline Hybron was the first woman to receive tenure in the English department at Columbia University and you've included an excerpt in the book um, from her memoir which was called when men were the only models I had, rather tellingly. Um, It addresses the idea of having to emulate men to succeed. And she talks about three of her academic heroes. And yet all of them are, to varying degrees, dismissive of the female experience. You include it in a chapter called Emulating Heroes. What do we need in a hero to emulate? So emulation is a subject of great interest to me, uh, both in literature and life. And this piece in particular, uh, because I was, uh, I mean, she's sort of a a pioneer, right, in in my discipline in in this sense. Um, 
so it had a particular resonance for me. But I'm I'm struck by her deft handling of the the both the need to emulate that's just a basic human need and also of its limitations. And for her, the limitations were, as you've mentioned, the fact that the three mentors that she, that were available to her, Fatim and Barzan and, and Trilling, uh, were in fact dismissive in many ways of her uh, and of her, um, of her intellect, of her ambitions. And yet, as her title suggests, that was all that was available to her. So she had to make the most of that and in, ended up defining herself, I think, against them and in the end, regards that as a as something as as being fortunate rather than unfortunate, in that she suggests that the her male peers who did find in them who could model themselves more fully on these mentors, but may not have in fact have been as accomplished, um, were sort of limited by that by that model that they could never transcend, and that she because she was forced to break out of it because they were inadequate inevitably as mentors, um, as brilliant as they were intellectually, um, that she was fortunate in that. And to me, that was an important um, example to include because I think often we find mentors who, and seek mentors who do look very much like us in many, in all sorts of ways. Uh, and we ha it's not always as clear to us when we have to break away from our mentors. But I think that that's a huge problem because that sort of devoted emulation can get us only so far. And that part of growing up as a human being and as a leader is figuring out when to break away and when to stop doing things just because other people were successful doing the same things. And that's a very hard lesson to learn uh, for my students, I think it's very hard because they work in such a strictly hierarchical environment that uh, it is only natural to look above and to see what the person who is more experienced and who outranks you does in certain situations. And part of that is style. You may have a very different style of leadership, but part of it is also just maturity and figuring out uh, when it is that you need to do your own thing and how to do that. And that's a frightening moment, I think, the first time you realize that you can no longer look to some model to tell you how to behave. Many of the world's most powerful leaders are, of course, still white, middle class and male. I asked Conson Locke about what can prevent people from other backgrounds as being seen as leadership material. So when we create a category like leader, does someone look like a leader? Do they act like a leader? The way we judge whether or not someone fits in that category is by looking for that one critical attribute that defines the category. Now the problem is human beings are so diverse that you don't have that critical attribute for any human category. Like they did a study on the leader and they had um, all of these attributes. They had like 11 categories of leaders, political leader, business leader, religious leader, etc. And they had all of these different attributes and they had people assign these attributes to the different types of leaders. There was no single attribute that applied across the board. Um, intelligent came close. It applied to like 10 out of the 11 categories. But so there's no, if there's no single attribute that determines if someone's a leader or not, the way we categorize leader is we create a prototype in our minds of what we think are the most representative attributes of that thing. And so essentially what we're doing is we're creating a leader stereotype and we're matching the reality against this stereotype that we're holding in our minds. And so where does that prototype or stereotype come from? 
It comes from what we have already seen around us. It comes from media. It comes from the movies. So most people end up having this prototypical idea of leadership as your mainstream, typically male, typically white leader. And when when they meet someone who doesn't match that classic prototype, then it's much more difficult for that person, whether it be because they're um, an ethnic racial minority, a religious minority, perhaps disabled, perhaps gay, um, a woman, you know, all of these, it makes it much more difficult for them to be perceived as a leader. I asked Konsum if there were any particular strategies people could employ to overcome this. So the way I, I teach people to deal with this whole, I mean, essentially it's unconscious bias. That's what we're talking about. There are two ways of dealing with it. You can, there's the system and then there's the individual. Dealing with the system is a much bigger issue, but it has to be dealt with. We can't just, we can't get rid of unconscious bias by telling people to not be biased. That's impossible because it's unconscious. So we need to create systematic ways of perhaps, um, you know, not looking at the names on CVs or, you know, ways of trying to, to overcome these biases that naturally occur in human beings. At, at the same time, individuals can help themselves by understanding what it means to look like a leader. And that's really the nonverbal behavior. So even though, you know, if I, as, a, as a racial minority, I'm not going to be able to make myself look white but what I can do is I can stand up straighter, I can, I can sound more confident, I can use the eye contact. All of these nonverbal behaviors that research has shown is associated with looking confident and looking leader-like. The more we can get people to use these, the more they will come across as more leader-like. But perhaps the issue of good leadership is a moot point. Do leaders, great or otherwise, really matter? Could organizations and the teams within them function perfectly well without them? Here's Constant Locke again. So there was a great stream of research a while ago called The Romance of Leadership. And what they looked at was how we, we kind of put leaders on a pedestal. And that, that was the one where I was talking about um, if the organization does really well, we give the credit to the leader. If it does poorly, we also give the credit to the leader. But no matter what, we we put a lot of we give a lot of credit to the leader, even if it wasn't necessarily the leader who made it happen. Even if it was the team, you know, or the economy, or whatever else it was, um, we the romance of leadership means we we want to look at an individual, and we want to either blame them or give them credit. And so, yes, I do think we put too much weight on it, but it still matters. It doesn't mean that leadership doesn't matter, because if you don't have someone that you can believe in and that you trust running the organization, it it affects motivation. It affects engagement. Elizabeth Samet pointed out that the cult of leadership can be a hindrance and can prevent a more diverse set of voices from being heard. I guess the, the one thing I would just like to come back to is this notion of uh, living in, a, in a, a world that is not as hierarchical or that, that many organizations have tried to flatten out their structures. That I think related to that is this idea that we, we fetishize the, not only crisis, but the leader as an individual. 
Um, and I think that, yes, there are moments when individual people uh, take charge of things in various contexts. But I think that looking for that person, waiting for that person to show up is really debilitating to all sorts of cultures. And instead, trying to imagine ways in which collaboration um, and in which sort of a leadership by a kind of um, complementarity, recognizing that people who are experts may be in one particular thing, may be at the, at, you know, the, the bottom of some presumed hierarchy, either explicit or implicit, and sort of trying to figure that out is, I think, really uh, crucial. Um, to recognizing underrepresented voices, to recognizing uh, people on, in your in your organization who have things to to add. Back to our initial question: What makes a great leader? Here's Ben Voyer. I think in many ways, great leaders need to master contradiction in the sense that I think they need to show a side of being democratic. That is, you know, compassion, understanding others. But at the same time, they need to be able to make decisions. Uh, and often, at the end of the day, the decision rests with the leader. So they need to both have the capacity to listen to others, to empathize with the teams, with the people that they're leading, but at the same time, being able to stay uninfluenced to make their ultimate decision. There are other elements of what can make a good leader, which help them to persuade and lead. For instance, charisma is one of them. If you've got a charismatic leader, they will take the people, the teams, uh, probably further than the same person with the same capability of making decisions, uh, the same capacity to listen, but not the same capacity to convey that kind of feeling that, you know, they are a great person. Constant Locke addressed the problem of separating the effectiveness of a leader from other factors that contribute to their success. A great leader... It's a really difficult question to answer because our judgment of great, our, that, that label great, is not really just about the leader. We conflate it with the outcomes. And if the outcomes are wonderful, then we think that leader was great. And if the outcomes are bad, then we think the leader wasn't so great. So. I think what makes a great leader is a whole variety of things, but a lot of them are not necessarily in the leader's control. So I think all you can do as a leader is you learn the basic skills, you, at which, and the basic skills are essentially learning to convince people, learning to be influential, learning to look ahead into the future and plan for the future, learning to get people on board, engage people. So those are, those are the basic leadership skills. But on top of that, to actually get things done, to actually get the positive results, it really depends on the people around you, on the environment at the time, on the organization at the time. Um, There's so many other factors that you have to deal with as a leader that I think to be a great leader is an extremely difficult thing. And to be judged as a great leader, oftentimes it's up to chance. <laughs> That's going to be the note that we end on, isn't it? <laughs> but it is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you really look carefully at some of the, say, you know, some of the U.S. presidents, you know, Jimmy Carter, 
who was panned as a terrible president. But you look at some of the stuff he really tried to do. He tried his hardest. And if it had turned out differently, then people would judge him differently. So I don't know. Sometimes it is, it is a thankless job, oftentimes. You try your best, and then you see what happens. Do you think there are different leaders for different times? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so the um, research on charismatic leadership has actually identified the factors that make a leader perceived as more charismatic. So if you happen to be leading at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty, um, I can't remember the other factors, but it's you know a lot of uncertainty, people um, have just come out of a very bad time, like a recession or something, um, and you happen to be the leader at that time, you are far more likely to be judged as char- charismatic than at any other time in history. So yes, it does depend a lot on the environment. Does that explain anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Here's Elizabeth Samet with her reflections on great leadership. To make a great leader, I think you do have to fail at a certain point in your career. And there's luck involved in the timing that that failure is not catastrophic. Um, You have to be able to work in a system that tolerates failure at a certain point. uh, That in the early stages and the training stages... Um, that there is an opportunity to fail on a small scale so that you learn what that's like and that you learn from your mistakes, which goes back to the to the grant passage that I included in that moment where he fails, um, but he's able to learn from that mistake. And I think to recognize that failure is inevitable at some point uh, and that there is a, a large element of luck that goes into all of this uh, rather than some kind of uh, virtue in the, in the leader or competence in the leader. The most competent leaders are still um, confronted with situations where they have imperfect information, bad luck, and um, they have to learn how to deal with that particular circumstance. In addition to, to that recognition, um, I'll go back also to the, to the point about crisis that I don't think good leaders necessarily look for crises or try to find moments where they can dash in at the last minute and save the situation. Sometimes that's necessary, but I think they have to be looking for opportunities when the waters seem very calm. And to do that, one has to have a great deal of imagination, which I think is is part of, you had asked, you know, what role does literature, literature, the study of literature play in a military academy? Well, it's also to cultivate that imagination in future leaders. And uh, in addition to that, in addition to the patients, which I suggested, um, I think they need an ability to, uh, people talk a lot about deep attention, that skill that is eroding. It's allied to patients, but not quite the same in that it requires a kind of focus and concentration in a world that does everything it can to distract us. And so sometimes that means uh, perhaps signaling to people that you aren't doing something. You have to sort of be willing to accept that maybe someone thinks that you're not, you're not doing something, but you, in fact, you are. Um, and I think that's hard, especially in a, in a culture in which I work, which sort of values the active life, um, the contemplative life is vital. What makes a great leader? A great leader knows how to convey confidence in their abilities by looking the part. And that part depends on the context in which they find themselves. They could be leading an army, medics or a team of junior consultants. Great leaders are self-reflective. 
and aware of the effects of power on themselves and others. Sometimes they fail just because of bad luck, but their failures lead to greater self-awareness. And they know that the most powerful leadership is not always in acting dramatically and decisively. Instead, it's sometimes about having the confidence to appear like they are not acting at all. Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by James Rattie, Tom Williams, Shay Forbes-Taylor and Sue Windybank. It was based in part on the following research. The downside of looking like a leader. Power, Nonverbal Confidence and Participative Decision-Making by Constance C. Locke and Cameron Anderson in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. Leadership, Essential Writings by Our Greatest Thinkers, edited by Elizabeth D. Samet. And Training Doctors and Nurses for Interdependence by Benjamin G. Voyer in the British Journal of Healthcare Management. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lsc.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on iTunes to help more people find LSEIQ. Join us next time when we ask, what's the future of the welfare state?